0: Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall.
1: Hello, and welcome everyone to today's podcast episode. This is J.W. Marshall from MarketScale, and we are very excited to have Max Cropper online with us today. How are you doing, Max? Doing great. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Uh, we're going to dive today into Merrill's uh, first principles. And uh, before we do that, could you give our audience just a little bit about background about yourself and what we're going to be talking about today?
0: Oh, certainly. Um, so I've been following uh, Dave Merrill's work for many, many years. When I worked on my master's degree at Brigham Young University, he was uh, still there just preparing to leave to go to USC uh, but I attended some of his uh, presentations and uh, actually ended up basing my master's project on his, one of his early theories, and, uh, which, is, which was very good. And he's developed instructional design theories over the years. And I've, I've studied and, and researched and, and practiced uh, you know, most of these theories and also studied other theories and done research. And then I went back for a doctorate. Utah State University, and um, he was one of my doc- doctoral advisors, and so uh, he taught his first principles, which included all of his previous theories uh, plus the uh, his first principles of instruction, which he felt were the most important for uh, good instruction, and uh, so. Uh, I've I followed his work and studied most of the other theories and and uh, tried to I'm trying to teach his first principles and and uh, best practices for training
1: Perfect, and so we're going to take a deep dive into the five principles today um, One by one, but before we do that if you could give everyone a little bit of an overview on the five principles
0: so uh, the five principles are the uh, five most important principles that he felt should be included in instruction. The most important principle is that the instructions should be task-centered. It would it should be built around around what he calls real-world, whole tasks, complete, significant tasks, accomplishments, scenarios, and and. Uh, those ta- those two scenarios or tasks should be used for introduction, demonstration, application, and, and integration or implementation. And, and so that's the first principle, is that you should use uh, real-world, uh, significant, meaningful, whole tasks. The second um, principle is that you uh, have activation, which is activating the learner's previous knowledge Uh, find out what they already know, maybe do a pretest, give them a preview of what they're uh, going to be learning and mastering and maybe a framework for uh, learning and mastering the tasks. Uh, The next principle, uh, the third one, is demonstration. And uh, so you should provide a demonstration of how to perform this real-world task. And and sometimes you need a progression of of problems if it's fairly complex and there are variations then the next uh, principle is application and you should uh, give the learner the opportunity to apply and practice uh, the variations of the real world tasks and finally the fifth principle is integration and you give the learner the opportunity to plan and, and perform in the workplace or in, or in the real-world, uh, these real-world tasks.
1: And these can be used for any kind of training, correct? That could be an on-site training, an online training, a hybrid training?
0: Absolutely, they, they should be used for, for every type of training uh, because when you teach with real-world tasks and the, the learners hopefully will be able to perform those real-world tasks.
1: Perfect, and so let's dive in a little bit deeper on the first principle, being task-centered, real-world engagement. Uh, where do a lot of trainings go wrong in kind of not starting
0: here? Uh, well, it's really typical for uh, instruction to be topic-centered, and so um, the instructor will provide all of the background information and, and uh all of the kind of reference information that they're going to need to know. And then maybe at the end of the instruction, they're given some real-world practice. Uh, But uh, sometimes they're not. Sometimes the instruction is just information only, or it has some interesting interactions and some flashy interfaces. (laughs) But... um, doesn't get to the heart of of demonstrating and uh, providing application of the real world tasks and so learners probably won't be able to perform those tasks on the job.
1: And so a lot of trainings kind of go backwards where they save the best for last instead of starting (laughs) off with that engagement. Right. All right. well let's dive into number two, the activation. And to me on the surface this one feels a little bit uncomfortable because you've not yet demonstrated um, or laid that foundation. Um, is that a little uncomfortable? And if so, is that by design?
0: Well, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. Uh, ultimately, uh, you c- there are different ways of finding out what the learner already knows about the task. And, you know, they may have performed the task before. Uh, the uh, I developed an authoring tool and a course for the Veterans Administration. The course was on tinnitus. Well, the, the audience of the, this tinnitus course, tinnitus is uh, a hearing ailment that's a noise or a, a ringing in the ears that doesn't go away, very common among uh, military veterans, and uh, but not limited to them. So the, the audience were doctors, audiologists, and psychologists. So these are very very knowledgeable people, and you might want to do a pretest, give them a sample patient, and say, okay, how would you treat this patient, and see how they did, you know, through all of the uh, all of the diagnoses and treatment phases. And so ultimately, you know, they may already know a lot, but maybe some things they don't know, and so you could do a pretest and find out what you know what they already know. And you could also provide them a framework, saying, "Okay, well, you know, here's some things. Maybe you don't know. Here are the phases that you'll you'll be going through." And so uh, you kind of find out what they know, and then you let them know, give them an idea of, "Okay, this is what you're gonna going to learn."
1: That's great. And a lot of our listeners are B two B businesses, and a lot of times they are working with. Uh, learners that maybe think they know more than they do at times, and so <laughs> I think we found that uh, that pretest, that uh, activation, uh, is it's good to be uncomfortable sometimes, and also to help the learner realize themselves that they maybe don't know everything in this uh, particular uh, topic or this uh, product or this strategy. And uh, it seems to be helpful early on to establish that what they know and what they don't know, but also some self-realization that uh, the learner uh, doesn't know everything. Maybe there's a few knowledge gaps and that Tends to get more engagement throughout the rest of the course because they they honestly do want to learn once they realize they're not quite as uh, an expert as they thought
0: they were. Well, and like you're saying, uh, it's good. It helps them know what they you know what they don't know yet. But learners, workers are very competitive. You know, if you give them a pretest, they want to do well. Doc- doctors and audiologists and psychologists medical professionals are extremely competitive so if if you give them a pretest and they find out oh i really don't know everything then they're going to be much you know much more open to the learning because they want to do well on the final test
1: absolutely all right, so now we'll move into number three, the demonstration. And, and in some regards, this would be where a lot of our listeners would think this is really where the learning happens. Um, what are some best practices for demonstration?
0: Well, I think the first bec- best practice for demonstration, even before you do the demonstration, it's important to do a, a, what I call a hierarchical task analysis so which is basically it looks like an organization chart but it's a a breakdown of all of the tasks and the subtasks that the learner needs to master so that they can perform the whole task and by doing that then your your course outline becomes an outline of how you're going to teach all of the subtasks the component tasks and the that will help them achieve the 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 task, and, and that way, when you demonstrate, you want to include all of those tasks and subtasks that the learner can't can't uh, ma- you know doesn't have mastered yet.
1: Well, and that makes sense because sometimes we find that uh, w- courses that uh, have already been built before we get a chance to work with with our uh, clients uh, have just kind of been built in a little bit of a linear fashion. But at the end, some of the assessments. Uh, weren't even really covered in the course because they weren't necessarily thinking with the end in mind, what are the subtasks that go into the tasks. Um, so really this is applied in the third stage but should be considered at the very beginning as you're looking at building your learning objectives and that type of thing, correct?
0: Uh, absolutely. And uh, also when, when you teach tasks, you also teach the component knowledge so that the learner can perform tasks intelligently so they can not only do the task perform the tasks but they can explain what they're doing and why and so it's it's intelligent performance of the significant tasks
1: perfect and that leads us into number 4 the application and i keep saying this is my favorite one but i think maybe application is one of my favorite Uh, pieces what are some best practices in the application
0: uh, principle well the key for application as it is for demonstration is to pick the right tasks the right scenarios and so these scenarios need to represent uh, the various situations that the learner is going to deal with on the job and in the real world and then uh, generally what you'll do is you'll go from the simpler scenarios to the more complex ones and and you will provide uh, diminished coaching so at first you may provide a lot of coaching but later on as they master the different aspects of the scenarios then they would need less coaching until they can perform the variations of tasks on their own
1: and then inversely, would there be uh, sort of uh, less variables initially and maybe a little more controlled environment that then would get more complex as they kind of built that scaffolding?
0: Exactly. Yeah, you start with the sim- simplest cases and then move towards the more more complex cases.
1: Perfect. And then this is going to build into the fifth principle of the integration what would you say are the best practices there?
0: Well, I think for integration and, and 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 you may have noticed that we haven't mentioned any evaluation yet. No testing. And so, uh, ultimately, somewhere between uh, application and integration, uh, you'll want to have, and uh, maybe it's at the high end of application, you may have a a very robust test where they have to show that they've mastered everything and then then they should plan make a plan on how they're going to integrate it on the job or in the real world and then actually integrate it your you know integrate it on the job and in in the real world
1: and that would again come back to those learning objectives before you start building the course you would want to know what are the ways that they would want to integrate this Because that's going to help the course be successful from the beginning because the learner is going to see this is why I need to be taking this course and, you know, you know, pouring into it and engaging with it.
0: Right. And and the the objective should be the actual tasks that they can perform the actual tasks, because often your learning objectives kind of obstruct uh, or obscure the real world tasks. Uh, for example, I've seen learning objectives. You know, the learner will be able to be able be able to identify key components. Well, yes, but the real world task is that they can uh, not just perform identify components, but they can perform the whole operation. And so, uh, Merrill says uh, identify real world tasks instead of uh, you know the more granular learning objectives.
1: That makes sense. Be more big picture with with what you want them to do. And actually, that is something we talk about quite a bit on the podcast, and I'd love to get your take on it, is kind of this shift from uh, just a learning outcome to a performance outcome. And it sounds like it lines right up here. It's not just uh, passing a a 20-question test and proving that you have the knowledge. It's actually being able to perform that task, which, again, Merrill's Principle's, Are all about the task is that something that you've seen a shift in um, recently
0: well I have the shift that I have seen uh, I coordinated uh, the curriculum for a leadership development program uh, an executive leadership development program for this office of the Secretary of Defense and we had we had experiential activities based on real-world tasks and and the program manager believed in experiential activities but because of that we were able to give uh, there were 64 participants from all the uh, these were civilians from all the departments in the military we were able to give them some real world significant activities Uh, like one of those activities was doing uh, what is called palm budgeting for the Department of the Navy and we had the different participants represent the different divisions of the Navy and we had they had to come out with a budget plan you know we gave them some time and they had to do that real-world activity that real-world budgeting and negotiation you know when the budget was cut and so um, the key is helping helping stakeholders, helping managers understand and helping instructional designers understand that we, we not only need to move to performance and to experiential activities, we need to move towards uh, teaching with real world tasks. It's not just, okay, we wanna achieve this great performance, we gotta say, okay, well, what real world tasks you know, represent this performance outcome?
1: Absolutely, that makes sense. And I think I've heard you before say, information is not instruction. Is that uh, line up here as well?
0: So so Merrill, that's one of his famous quotes, information is not instruction. And, and I didn't tell you about uh, my dissertation study, or may, maybe I have in the past, but so uh, for my dissertation study at Utah State University, uh, Dave Merrill Uh, created one of the evaluation forms one of the rubrics that we use to evaluate 10 online courses we had also had three other uh, more generic rubrics and uh, so Dr. Merrill he was the baseline evaluator for his rubric and he evaluated these 10 online courses six of the courses he gave 0 out of 100 points possible for those courses zero (laughs) zero points they were information only courses they were survey courses and he says they have no value and uh, and that's not totally i don't think that's totally true but they're very very low value because how you know how are people going to apply that information with a little bit of thought that you know you could come up with scenarios and say okay well let's Let's, how, how do you apply this information? How do you apply these theories and come up with significant real-world uh, scenarios?
1: And so that leads me perfectly into my next question. Um, what are some best practices to apply Merrill's First Principles to online courses, specifically since in this pandemic we've obviously seen a huge shift um, towards the online and it, doing things online is not uh, a one-to-one from how you may have done things with your on-site trainings and your, your trainings at your headquarters. Um, so what would be some best practices to uh, do online or maybe even some things to watch out for not doing online?
0: Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to think outside the box. And, and it's fairly easy to do demonstration online. Uh, Because you can video things, you can video demonstrations, so on and so forth. But it's much more difficult to provide real-world application online. Uh, Although there are things that you can do, you can do, uh, I've done for the Veterans Administration, uh, we had various uh, scenarios with different patients, and when we'd get to a decision point, uh, uh, I'd put in text entry items where the, the doctor would have to type in to the computer what, you know, what kind of treatment they'd provide at a certain point and then they'd click on you know submit and then they could compare their answer with the expert answer and so there are some things you can do online and you can actually write some pretty good multiple choice questions if you know how to write good distractors and also do scenario based but ultimately you have to be thinking about how can I have them practice offline Uh, if you're having somebody change a transmission they've got to practice offline and so then 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 you start thinking okay well maybe I can have they can have a coach or a mentor or a master mechanic that they're working with. And so they plan their practice offline. And maybe maybe if it's kind of an online program, they video kind of what they did. And then they share it back with the instructor. So, so ultimately, you have to be thinking about, okay, what can I do online? What can I do offline? And, and think outside the online constraints.
1: That's a great uh, segue into you know the myth that online learning has to be eight hours a day in front of the computer. And this could be for schools, for uh, higher education, for the workplace. Um, I think a lot of uh, instructors, if you will, have, have learned that lesson the hard way over the last six months, that you can't just take what you are doing on site and do it 100% online. Have you seen that as well?
0: Yes, and one of the biggest problems uh, for for kind of live instruction is uh, it takes some work to to video a lecture or a demonstration. <laughs> you know, instructors are used to going to the classroom and they pretty much have their outline, you know, and they follow it and give give it all their presentation. But it's it's more work to. Uh, video it or you know do a live video and uh, a lot of at the university a lot of them didn't put their lectures they didn't video their lectures they took their course <laughs> online <laughs> but no lecture no, you know not even no demonstration no lecture at all and so uh, ultimately you you have to be it's harder because you have to think okay how am I going to demonstrate this how am I going to video this Uh, How am I going to give examples of of this uh, so that the learners are going to be able to see good examples in in practice?
1: Yeah, and ultimately, I I feel like it's making our instructors better. Uh, I use the example, we work with a lot of sales teams and sales trainings, um, and some of the best salespeople are really great with a class, with an audience. But they really struggle if they need to do a webinar that is just them talking for 30 or 45 minutes without that interactive feedback. And what it's done is it's forced them to really tighten up their pitch and and get better. And and I would imagine we're seeing that with instructors having to uh, do some of this on-demand recording that uh, it's really uh, probably difficult uh, and not... uh, comfortable as they have been doing, you know, in-class lectures, but ultimately making them better at delivering that instruction.
0: Well, I certainly hope so. That's that's my, one of my uh, missions, I guess, is to help, you know, help instructors do better, you know, face-to-face or online.
1: Absolutely. And hopefully this podcast has given them some tools to, to do that. Uh, it if this is a someone instructing, whether it's a corporate training or an, a professor, and uh, they haven't done their first online recording yet, they've been putting it off. What advice would you give to them? Uh, maybe you know, logistically and just mentally.
0: Well, I th- I think uh, number one, I would I-, I have them identify the real world tasks, task or tasks. That they want the learners to be able to perform, and and the level, you know, the level of ideal performance, if possible, and then uh, ask themselves, how can I best demonstrate these best practices? Should I demonstrate in a role play? You know, should I demonstrate, or should I video somebody else doing it? Uh, what's the best way to demonstrate, you know, within the time and the constraints that they have. And, and then figure out, okay, how am, I gonna, <laughs> how am I going to video this, or whatever, if it's just going to be audio, how am I going to record this, you know, and provide it for the audience. Are there any key principles? Do I need to add some slides? Do I need to add some graphics? And so, just be thinking about okay, what's the best best way to demonstrate these real to world tasks? And then, how can I have them practice? Can we do role plays? Can we do uh, have them practice offline and video it? You know, and so think of okay, what's the best way to have them apply it? And then how how are we going to evaluate that performance and have that integrate them and integrate that uh, on the job and maybe how am I going to provide coaching? Coaching seems to be the the most significant uh, factor for improving performance for leaders and, and for workers. So so those those are the things that I'd be uh, thinking about.
1: Absolutely. And and just keeping in mind that everything doesn't have to be online, that you can have those offline components, maybe take a little bit of the pressure off yourself. And if it is a course or uh, content that is going to be delivered over and over, possibly even look into uh, getting some third-party help with some video editing or uh, some delivery platform, something like that, um, so that it's not all on, on you. Uh, there are some resources out there in the world that can, that can help you uh, take some of those tasks off of your plate that are maybe not in your wheelhouse uh, until you kind of have some time to learn. Um, this has been a, a great conversation, Max. I really appreciate it. Um, tell us a little bit about your certificate program before we wrap up today.
0: Yes. So uh, I found that it takes uh, some, some serious instruction and practice to master using Merrill's first principles of instruction. There are many people that are familiar with his first principles and many who are not. But I have, I've put together a 10-week certification program to certify uh, five-star instructional designers. And, and in that program, I, I teach how to, how to evaluate, uh, do five-star course evaluation, how to do high-level, five-level course design, uh, five-star course design, how to, how to do uh, hierarchical task analysis, how to identify uh, progressions of problems, how to uh, develop, design, and develop uh, individual modules that are part of the instruction, and then how to uh, how to flesh out the instruction for all of the uh, the demonstration and application for all of the scenarios. Uh, in addition to that, I teach a comprehensive uh, performance improvement model so that uh, so that you can uh, incorporate all of the factors for improving human performance and I also teach a module on lean process improvement because if your if your process is bad doesn't matter (laughs) how much much instruction you give it's still really hard to perform perform the tasks so you need to have uh, efficient and and effective processes so uh, anyway those are some of the things we cover in this uh certification program and and i start one at the beginning of each month
1: and that's open to instructors learners at all levels
0: yes instructors trainers developers yes at all levels
1: perfect so if you're just starting out this would be a great way to get uh, dive right in, uh, but even if you've been doing this for a while and you want to hone your skills, uh, Max is a great teacher. I can speak from experience on that. Max, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, thank, thank you, JW. And uh,
1: everyone out there listening, thank you so much for joining us as well. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode, and remember to always keep learning.